Good morning. Last week, I talked about the importance of gratitude and how we express our gratitude through giving. Today, I want to spend some time talking about what is surely the opposite of expressing gratitude, and that is complaining. Although not listed as one of the seven deadly sins, this habit can be incredibly toxic, both to us and to those around us. And the text I chose for further study is Philippians 2, 14 to 16. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading that in the English Standard Version. Uh, If you are looking in your pew Bibles, it's page 1084. If you'll turn there with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I love this verse. It creates such a beautiful picture of what God's people can and should be without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Never is this more important than now in our current culture. Events like the most recent one in Charlottesville remind us that we're living in a crooked and twisted generation. And this is what God is calling us to do, to be shining lights in the middle of a dark world. And we all want to do this, right? But we are going about it in the wrong way. My church friends and those who profess to be Christians are spending their days grumbling and complaining, critical of the world around them, throwing verbal daggers at the other side of the aisle from them. And this is not what we are called to be. When we read about the children of Israel and their exile from Egypt, we see that God was calling them out and asking them to set the example as his chosen people. But instead of reading a story about shining lights, we read a story of a group of people who is constantly whining and complaining. Jeff Kroll, in an article titled, How Israel Complaining 14 Times Mirrors Your Christian Journey, states that the children of Israel complained 14 times throughout their journey from Egypt to Canaan. It feels like a lot more than that as you're reading their story, but here's a synopsis. First, they complained to Moses because his actions have made Pharaoh angry at them and their work harder. Then they complained because Moses took them out of Egypt and they are afraid of the Egyptians. They complain because they are thirsty and the water Moses led them to is bitter. They complain because they are hungry. They complain because they are thirsty again. Sounds a little bit like living with a toddler. They complain to Aaron that Moses is taking too long up on the mountain. They complain about the menu. Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses' leadership leadership and the fact that God speaks through him. 
They complain because it looks more difficult to enter Canaan than they had expected, and they're scared. They complain because they want a different leader. They complain against Moses and Aaron. They complain against Moses and Aaron again, saying that they have killed God's people. They complain of thirst and hunger. Lastly, they become irritable and grumpy as they're traveling, and they complain against God and Moses. For the children of Israel, their grumbling and complaining had very real consequences. 3,000 people were killed when they became impatient with Moses and worshipped the golden calf. Miriam was struck with leprosy. They were struck with pestilence. And once, the ground even opens up and swallows the offenders. God does not take grumbling and complaining lightly. Recently, I joined a Facebook group called Estes Park Jibber Jabber. The purpose of the page is to keep Estes Park residents informed about things that are happening in town and to provide a platform for business owners and others to advertise events and services. It sounds harmless enough. But this is the worst group of people I have ever encountered. The range and breadth of things they find to post about and complain about is incredible. And I brought a few of these gems here to share with you this morning. First, Phoebe. I was forced to complete stop on 36 today because apparently people don't know how to drive around a corner officially done with summer. Next one. Oh, sorry, can we go? Yeah, this is a good one too. Do they only put blinkers on certain cars now? Biggest peeve, rude drivers. And right now this town is crawling with them. Oh, sorry, darn tourists. I meant to uh, get that out of there. Not hard to use the curse word blinkers. Unhappy. What's the next one? Ashley, whatever you do, don't go to Safeway right now. Literally stuck in the parking lot. Haven't moved an inch in five minutes. First waited forever at the pharmacy. Not the pharmacist's fault. Now this. Cars still aren't moving, and I'm now officially late for work. Linda, Notch Top just lost our business. Well, Notch Top is a bakery in town, so obviously she's asking us to say, what's wrong, Linda? Did you get bad service? What happened, Linda? Okay, next one. Myrna, I have always really liked the hotcakes at McDonald's, but this morning they were tough, and even though I came straight home, they were almost cold by the time I got home with them. I wonder if they didn't cook them enough or too much. Strange. Poor Myrna, maybe if you hadn't taken the time to post on Facebook, your hotcakes wouldn't have been so cold. And I just read these, and I have to wonder if this is truly cathartic for people. A lot of them will end their post with something like, sorry, just needed to vent, or sorry, end rant. But of course, they only ever seem to apologize after they've gotten off their chest what they wanted to say fully vented their frustrations. And I'm pretty sure all it does is just take their bad mood and share it with someone else. Now we too can feel irritated or upset. I was once in a customer service training where they described bad experiences like mud. When we have a bad experience and we get mud on ourselves, the first thing we want to do is take it and share it with someone else. 
So we take that mud and we wipe it on the next person. That person then feels disgruntled and goes and shares it with the next person and the next and the next until everyone has a little bit of mud but nobody is clean or happy. And this is what complaining does. Generally, it doesn't truly make you feel better and it makes others feel worse. So why do we do it? Earlier this year, I heard that my friend and yours, Becky de Oliveira, was giving up something unusual. She had decided to give up complaining. This struck me as interesting for several reasons. First, it's an odd thing to choose to give up. And second, because it was coming from someone so unexpected. Becky does an amazing job expressing gratitude. And for any of you, probably everyone in this uh, room, if you've done something nice for Becky, you did not do it without getting a handwritten, beautifully handwritten thank you note on gorgeous stationery in the mail within about a day of that act of doing that kind thing. She's wonderful at this. And I thought, someone so good at expressing gratitude surely didn't have any issues with complaining. So I sat down with Becky, and I asked her about this kind of experiment that she had done. Was she able to master this thing that seemed so impossible? If so, I wanted her to tell me how to do it. And so we sat down and talked, and she shared with me how, as a spiritual practice, she gives up something during the time of Lent each year, the 40 days leading up to Easter. She has foregone physical things during that time, such as sugar or caffeine, and she's found those things to be easy compared with complaining. For one, she found that complaining is a sort of bonding thing we do with each other. When you meet someone new, you might just harmlessly complain about how bad the weather is or how bad traffic was that morning. And when you're talking with a new schoolmate, you can bond together over how hard the classwork is or how frustrating the schedule. Shared frustrations and annoyances can really draw us together. And Becky found that it can be almost isolating to be the one who's staying positive in the middle of a group who wants to complain. And of course, some complaining is necessary. We need people to speak up when there's social injustice and wrongdoing. But in the end, Becky shared that even though she wasn't able to be 100% complaint-free as she had set out to do, this goal did remind her to be a more positive person and to change her outlook when it was a situation where it was simply her attitude that was affecting things. She also confided that it still bugs her when people try to put a positive spin on everything. With words like, at least you're still alive. Of course I'm glad I'm not dead, she says. Yes, it could be worse. But there is a time and a place for positivity too. So be careful that you don't try to put a positive spin on someone else's pain. So how can we create positive change without being that annoying person who is always helping you look on the bright side. When I was young, maybe 10 years old or so, I was sitting next to my mom in church when our pastor, who was Fred Kroll at the time, back in Columbia, Missouri, uh, he sent around a sign-up sheet to play volleyball. Now, this was kind of a big deal at our church. On Saturday nights, everyone would be out there in the gym uh, wearing their knee pads and their sports goggles, and they were really playing a competitive game of volleyball. And Pastor Kroll 
he uh, loves sports. He's a competitive person. But I think he was also trying to just create some community within the church members. So uh, that day, he decided to send a clipboard through the church so that everyone who wanted to play could sign up to be on a team. So the clipboard goes around. And my family is not into sports. We were not the ones out on the volleyball court on Saturday nights. Um, so I expected for my mom to take the clipboard and pass it along. But instead, I watched as she took the pen, and then she wasn't writing her name. I watched in horror as she started scratching out something. So, and then she passes the clipboard along to the next row. So we get out to the parking lot, and like, I'm ready to tell on her, right? So to Danny and Dalton, I'm like, guys, you won't believe it. Mom scratched out someone's name on the clipboard. And mom said, Dina, I didn't scratch out someone's name. Someone had just written something that wasn't very nice, so I just scratched it out. And we're like, oh, man, Mom, like, thinking, you're such a rebel, right? What did you scratch out? And she said, someone had written, what does volleyball have to do with our salvation? Answer me that, Pastor Kroll. And my mom said, they had written it anonymously, and he doesn't need to see that. So she had scratched it out and passed it along. Now, for some reason, Danny and Dalton and I thought that this was really hilarious. Something about that person's mean wording, we were like, that's so funny. So even to this day, we incorporate it. It's kind of one of the Drain family sayings. So you can use it like, who ate all the rolls? Answer me that, Pastor Kroll. <laughs> or... My dessert was here when I left it. What happened to it? Answer me that, Pastor Kroll. <laughs> In our family, it usually has to do with someone else taking your food. And it's very effective. Nothing really cuts you to the quick like an answer me that. But the larger, more important lesson that I learned from my mom is that a lot of criticism is completely unnecessary. And it can end with us. We don't have to perpetuate a culture of complaint. We don't have to spread that rumor or vent or rant. I would love to see us start right here in this church, shining as bright lights in a dark world. There seems to be something wrong with our society when we don't value the person who is easily pleased. In order to show that you are well-educated and intelligent, you must be able to critique. We are all encouraged to think for ourselves and not to follow the crowd, which is good advice, but it also creates a culture where nothing is good enough. The crowd may be doing that, but I'm going my own way. I'm better than that. I know how to think for myself. And we hold in high esteem those that see everything with a critical eye and don't value contentment at all. But contentment is important. Research from the Gottman Institute discovered that couples who stay together and have happier marriages make five positive comments for every negative one. I'm sure this applies to all relationships, not just marriages, because no one wants to continue hanging around the person who only has negative things to say. Society places a high value on people who know how to be critical, but maybe we're called to be different than that. 
And I have to wonder if this might be one of the ways that we are called to be a peculiar people. Perhaps we are not called to be peculiar in the way we dress or eat, but just maybe we are called to be peculiar in this really wonderful way where we don't do what is normal. Where it's normal for people to share everything that offends them, we share the things for which we're grateful. Where it is normal to tear others down when they feel they have a right to do so, we are lifting others up and extolling their good works. Where it is normal for people to talk about how rough their life is, we are quietly living lives of contentment. Not too long ago, I attended a convention where there was both programming for the adults and for the kids. Uh, kids Ellie's age, anyway. And um, so I took Ellie down the hall of the convention center there, and I noticed a lot of things, right? I kind of was looking at everything with a critical eye. First thing I noticed was there was a long line of parents and kids, a um, little bit of chaos to even get your child in the door. It took forever. Uh, then when I came back to get Ellie, I noticed the, long was, the line was even longer this time. And in my head, I'm thinking, not at Boulder Church. We have a barcoded system. We know how to do this. Um, and their system was you find your child's name, and I don't think we even had to sign our name. You just wrote the time that you checked them in and then the time you checked them out. So I'm thinking, not very safe. Anyone could write a time on there. They aren't verifying it's me. Then uh, it's that long line of parents is there. At one point, the organizers lifted up a child, showed him to the line of parents, and said, Tristan, is anyone here for Tristan? <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is a disaster. Where have I left my child? So finally, I get to the front of the line. I write down the time, you know, nothing to verify it's me, just the time. And I'm allowed into the room to pick up Ellie. Now, for those of you who know Ellie, this story is not a surprise. I make eye contact with Ellie. She sees that I am horror of horrors there to pick her up. And she burst into tears. Now, is Ellie saying, oh, mom, this program was so disorganized? No. She is saying, I was having fun. Why are you coming to get me? I don't want to leave. And she is a ball of tears. I walk with her down the hall, and I've learned this distraction technique because we have a lot of meltdowns right now at this point in our little life. And so my distraction technique is to say, well, what were you doing that was so much fun? You know, why are you sad to leave? And she starts telling me, oh, we were singing songs, and they told me Bible stories, and then we got to do a craft. And she was having the time of her life. In this way, well, hopefully not in the whole melting down tears way, but you get the idea. We are told to be like little children. Be easily pleased and excited by the things that were made for us. Don't be critical and looking for ways that other people can improve, like I was doing. If anything, look at yourself and see what you need to improve. In this story that I just shared, 
I learned that I did not need to be upset by the long line to get my daughter. She was in no hurry to be picked up. I could just cool my jets, take my time, and all was well. I would much rather her enjoy the program like she did than have a slick program where all they were focused on was pick up and drop off, right? What they had done for Ellie was they had focused on the most important part, which was showing her a great time, showing her that they loved her, and through that, showing her that God loved her. And I was so glad, once I took a step back and realized that, I was so thankful for the program that they were providing for her. In John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name, he tells about how the people in the times of the Bible worshipped many gods. They worshipped angry gods who demanded sacrifice. King Agamemnon worshipped the god Artemis. And when a great storm came up, Artemis demanded the sacrifice of the king's daughter. King Agamemnon did this, and the storm was calmed, but at the cost of his own daughter. We are more familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah's shipmates decided that there must be sacrifice when they were caught out on an angry sea. They were at least a little more judicious. They cast lots to see who would be thrown into the sea, which sounds terrible, and yet it was a system with which they all seemed to be familiar. It was in this culture that the disciples also found themselves in a boat on rough water. And that storm became worse and worse and worse. They were with Jesus, but Jesus was calmly asleep. So they woke him and asked him to save them. And they must have been wondering who was going to be sacrificed to calm this storm. In their heads, they must have been going through the events of the day and thinking, okay, who messed up? Who is it going to be? Who deserves this fate? But instead of sending a sacrifice overboard, Jesus stood up and simply said, peace, be still. Jesus did the exact opposite of what they were surely expecting. They were shocked. And at the end of his ministry, they were even more shocked when he himself became the sacrifice. God does not demand a sacrifice from us, but he was the sacrifice for us. In the midst of our storms, the things that drive us to complain, grumble, and lament, his presence in our lives is enough to calm them and bring peace. Before Ellie was born, we were given a book titled, Life is Good at Grandma's. It's all about how grandma loves you and thinks you're the greatest. Your crayon drawings aren't perfect, but grandma puts them on her refrigerator. You break grandma's favorite teapot, and all she says is, that's okay. Basically, grandma loves you and thinks you're special no matter what. Our kids are incredibly fortunate to have two wonderful grandmas, Nani and Grammy. They know that when they are with one of these ladies, they can ask for anything. Treats, kid shows, books, toys, they're all theirs. I can see in Ellie especially that she feels special when she's in the presence of one of her grandmas. She kind of struts around as though she owns the place. And this doesn't happen by accident. 
They create this incredible, special environment because they love their grandkids and want to see them happy. I believe if God had written a children's book for us, it would be called Life is Good at God's House. Our creations and works of art are weak at best, but he cherishes them. We make a mess and break things beyond repair, and he sweeps up the mess and says, that's okay. Similar to a grandma, he does this not because we have done anything to deserve it, but because he loves us. If an all-powerful God who is perfect can look at us and not be critical, how much more should we look around the world, look at the world around us with loving eyes? God does not want us critiquing the world and complaining. He wants us to live content, happy, fulfilled lives in him. I would like to end by reading a passage from Paul. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians 4, starting with verse 4. And this is page 1085 if you're looking in your white pew Bibles. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Don't post rants about your neighbors on Facebook. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, similar to that of grandma, we all know the child is not that cute, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He will calm those storms in your life. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him. Who strengthens me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. Please help us to live lives of contentment, light lights for you. Thank you. We love you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.